Hello and welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast for the week of December 27th, 2017. So happy holidays, everyone. My name is Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I'll be your host today. And as always, I'm joined by my co-podcasters, my fellow 538 sports writers, Kyle Wagner and Chris Herring. Hey, guys. How you doing? Fine. You're fine. Fine. Kyle always fine. gives the 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 most uh, monosyllabic answers to uh, to that question. Hey, Chris. I'm, I'm better than Kyle is. Kyle answered that like a shy child or something. Doesn't want to talk yeah. to the adult. <laughs> well, maybe it's the fact that we are right now time displaced uh, in in the way that we're doing this show. We're breaking from our usual format. None of us are actually in studio Christmas week, so we're recording this episode ahead of time. Uh, and so we're also going to do just a different format for uh, this week's show. We've opened things up to you, the listeners, for a little Q&A with us. Uh, last week, we asked on Twitter for your questions about the NBA season so far and the NBA as a whole. And we got a lot of great responses, so we're going to try to get through as many of them as we can on today's show. And that means we're going to kind of do a little lightning round thing, fire off some uh, some hot takes uh, on today's show. And before we get to that, though, we do have a word from our sponsor, Do you crave home-cooked meals but worry about following recipes and going shopping for the ingredients? Well, let Blue Apron take care of everything. Blue Apron delivers fresh, pre-proportioned ingredients and step-by-step recipes right to your door, and they can be cooked in under 45 minutes. The menu changes each week based on what's in season and is designed by Blue Apron's in-house culinary team. Blue Apron offers 12 new recipes each week, and customers can pick two, three, or four recipes based on what best fits their schedule. And Blue Apron sends only non-GMO ingredients with meat that has no added hormones. Some of the best parts of our day happen over dinner, so Blue Apron is treating the lab's listeners to their first three meals for a $30 value with your first order if you visit blueapron.com slash the lab. That's T-H-E-L-A-B, one word. So check out this week's menu and get your $30 off with free shipping at blueapron.com slash the lab. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay, let's dig in on some of these listener questions. So first of all, I'm going to give one from William Ramos uh, on Twitter. He asks, which team or player has been the biggest surprise so far? I'm loving what I'm seeing from Victor Oladipo in Indiana. And we actually got a few questions like this about which player or team has jumped out and surprised us so far. So what do you guys think? So I'm going to go with Oladipo here. Maybe it's an obvious answer to some extent. But when you look at the fact that he, if you had told people before the season that Victor Oladipo is going to outscore Paul George, that he's going to be more efficient than George Mello and Russell Westbrook, and that he would actually look like the steal of of both of those trades, I I think you would have gotten a lot of blank stares from people. And especially if you'd not only said that, but thrown in the idea that Indiana would be in the playoff race. I thought it was pretty fair to expect that Indiana would be in a position where they needed to tank the season. And they're actually better than they were last year. And that's with having had Miles Turner out for part of the season. That's with DeMontis Sabonis, you know, being at times a second, third option behind Victor Oladipo. They've looked really good and they've played against pretty good competition at times and won those games. So they, they look real to me. This doesn't look fluky. Victor Oladipo doesn't look fluky. It's raised a larger question, I think, and a fair question about Russ and kind of the way he, uh, so, strongly took over that offense last year and whether he did more than he really had to or if that was necessary for him to do that. So I would say Oladipo 
And I don't really think there's a, a, a really, really strong argument to be made about anyone more so than him. So the, the crazy thing about Oladipo is that we kind of expected that he would, you know, show out a little bit, that he would, you know, get get his counting stats, get whatever else. But he hasn't just been putting up, you know, good player on bad team stats, like pretty good player on bad team stats. He's looked like a dude that you could, you know, think about building around, like maybe as your best guy, maybe as a second best guy, like ideally, but like, no, he has been contributing in like, shit, three, two, one. But no, he's been playing at a, at a rate where like, you can think about him as like a foundational piece. And, which that's, is, and that's what people thought he would be coming out of college and, and it didn't materialize until now. So Kyle, what is your pick for the most uh, impressive or surprising player so far? Hear me out. Like, so it's, so it's the Rockets, the Rockets, but like specifically it's Clint Capella. Okay. So like the Rockets have a bunch of dudes playing extremely, extremely well. Ryan Anderson is like shooting great. Uh, Eric Gordon finally looks healthy. Like Mba Mute, like is playing well. Like he played some backup point guard for a while. Uh, like PJ Tucker, Trevor Ariza. Like they're both. They're all having very good seasons. All the Rockets role players. Chris Paul has a lot to do with that. And the games that he's been back. James Harden's obviously been great. But Capella is the dude who's pulling it all together. They have like one of the best defenses in the league this year. Already last season he was showing that. But this season, he's gotten more efficient than ever. He was already incredibly efficient, but now he's at, like, DeAndre Jordan levels around the rim. He is holding that defense together, that defense now that has all those pieces that's, you know, flying around, doing all those switches, doing the things that we like defense to do now. And he's making $2 million a year. He's up for a new contract next year. He's got a qualifying offer, yada, yada, yada. Um, but he's up for a deal. And so maybe it's, you know, to be expected. This guy in his fourth year um, had shown a lot of promise. Uh, he's in a contract year. Sure, but like he's out here doing it in a way that like is really changing the Rockets and like kind of the fabric of that team where they were just an all offense team. They were, you know, all these things, even while Dwight was there, like while Dwight Howard was there, they weren't rebounding the same way that they, they are. They weren't, you know, playing defense the same way. And Clint Capella is giving them that this he's year. Basically which, giving them what they thought they would get out of Dwight Howard, but in a better way in some ways. Right. And like, like, these guys can come out of nowhere. Like, traditionally, they haven't because, like, scouting on, you know, a tall, you know, close to seven foot, you know, player tends to be closer than, like, it is on a point guard, whatever else, who like, it's more common to get them, uh, later on. But, I mean, you saw that with, like, Hassan Whiteside, saw it with Draymond Green at the second round. Uh, more big men have been, you know, just kind of surprising teams and just turning into foundational pieces than, than in the past, I think. And, and Capella's been, been great this season. Okay, so my pick for most surprising team uh, has been the Toronto Raptors. Uh, no team has added more to their ELO rating so far this season. So statistically, they have been the most surprising team. But also, it's just kind of shocking. We've gotten a lot of questions, in fact, when we put things out to listeners, just about, are the Raptors for real? Uh, and so I wanted to read a response that was written to us in, uh, in regard to those questions by our intern, Dan Levitt, uh, who has... Ha- has helped us with the podcast for for many months now, and he is a Toronto native, a, a Raptors fan. And so his answer is, the Raptors are not for real yet. Uh, they've accumulated the fifth most regular season wins since 2014, yet have only won three playoff series. And while the team is playing well this season and playing differently this season, uh, we still don't know whether they will be able to hold it up in the playoffs. So kind of a pessimistic view from, from a Raptors fan that we have on staff. But I still think, based on the way that they've played and uh, the way that they've changed the way they play, uh, it's it's still been surprising to see them jump out and be able to play so well at the beginning of the year. Daniel goes on to write, 
And what will they do if they have to meet the Cavs or Dubs? That will be the way we finally see if T.O. is for real. Hashtag RTZ. Hashtag We the North. Hashtag Six Side. <laughs> hashtag We for Real. Hashtag Dwayne Casey the Real OG. There's a lot of hashtags in, in a response that was written and not on a medium that contains hashtags. Okay, so let's move right along. Okay, so we've got our next question here. This one's from Juan Nieve. And he asked, which middle-of-the-road team's win-loss record stands to improve the most in the second half based on underlying statistics? I think it's an interesting question. If I had to pick a team, I actually would probably be inclined to say Milwaukee. They've done about what you'd expect them to do based on their numbers and their underlying numbers so far. They've been very dominant in terms of Giannis doing everything for them. But they're still pretty new to having a new point guard there and Bledsoe. And also, they seem like a team that would be likely to make another move uh, near the trade deadline. You hear them being talked about with regards to DeAndre Jordan and maybe trying to bulk up at center a little bit, which would be an amazing kind of lineup for them and really athletic, uh, even more athletic if they got him. Plus, uh, you hear more and more about Jabari Parker coming back, who I don't know exactly how he would fit with everybody. He really didn't play last year with Middleton and Giannis. He got hurt right as soon as they got Middleton back into the lineup from his injury last year but he'd be a pretty amazing guy to be able to bring off your bench just when you do hit those lulls in terms of not having Bledsoe or Giannis on the court or both of them off the court at the same time that's a heck of a guy to be able to bring off your bench and just kind of tell him to to run your second unit and be your score in your second unit so I would go with Milwaukee there so I've got the 76ers um, like we give them a you know a lot of hassle about you know process whatever we talked a lot about their the rookies in what, yesterday yeah talked about show, them whatever. last week yesterday whatever um but so they are 12th in defensive efficiency right now uh but their underlying statistics on that are that they are fourth in defensive effective field goal percentage they're sixth in the quantified shot quality which is the fancy metric from second spectrum that uses the player tracking to give you defender placement uh who's shooting whatnot so they're sixth in that and they're first in rebound rate meaning that they can just amass more possessions than the other team so they they're have, forcing bad shots and they're rebounding shots that get missed. It's right. just the in-between part is not catch, uh, catching up to that yet. Right. So J.J. Redick isn't shooting as well as he traditionally has. They have Markel Fultz just like not really seeing the floor, but for the beginning of the season. Uh, is a team that like is very young. Obviously, they're you know, going through a losing streak right now when we're recording this. But yeah, like this is a team that like is playing good defense, has good fundamentals, which is a new thing out there and they're making win now moves they picked up trevor booker for okafor in in the trade whatever and they gave up a pick for that like they they're making win now moves this season to like get into the playoffs so from where they are like on the losing streak whatever else like i can see them you know getting back on it cool uh my pick is going to be the portland trailblazers they're 16 and 15 as we tape this uh but they rank ninth in point differential and so according to their pythagorean record they should be 18 and 13 they're one of the most unlucky teams in that regard uh so far this season and that's with a couple important players cj mccollum and yusef nurkic not playing as well as they did last season uh and then if you dig into some of the second spectrum metrics like kyle mentioned uh they are underperforming relative to what we'd expect their 
shooting percentages to be at both ends of the floor. Uh, defensively, they force the toughest shots in the league right now. Uh, so you would think that their offensive rating and their defensive rating would improve as the season goes on. So that's a team that I expect to play better going forward than they have so far, even though they do take uh, some of the toughest shots in the league. They have guys uh, who are good at it. McCollum is notably uh, one of the best tough shot makers in the league so far, and he's been not quite as good on that front uh, thus far in the season, but he has a long track record of doing that. So my pick, Portland. They're so interesting just because we we talked about them a couple weeks ago on the podcast, but it's mostly the same cast and crew that they have. They've obviously swapped out a couple guys, but it's largely the same scheme they're playing too. And so it's it's so strange that they've forced the toughest shots in the league, that their defense is a top-five defense, because normally teams don't make jumps from one half of the league defensively to the top end of the other half or the bottom end of the other half with the same cast. It's just unique to see, especially without a coaching change or anything like that. I, I was actually reading a story about how the coaches just challenged them to limit teams to no more than 24 points in a quarter. And so sometimes if they get if the other team gets to 22 with like three minutes left, all of a sudden you see these guys really pick up their intensity and their effort. But, it, you know, it's just such a weird thing. Schematically, nothing's really, really changed there, and all the players are the same. And so I, I, I don't know if I expect them to hold up quite as well, but – I mean, their defense has been so much better than we expected, and the numbers bear that out. Yeah, and they do have some guys like Aminu and Nurkic, especially, that are known as pretty good defensive players that weren't there for the entire year last year that probably you would expect them to play a little better defensively, maybe not make that much of a leap. But yeah, it is surprising to see them with that great shot quality allowed metric. And that does tend to be predictive. We we see that teams do tend to kind of regress toward that over the long term if they're deviating in, in terms of the, qual- of the actual effective field goal percentage that they give up on shots. Yeah, especially if they don't have one of those guys who just like a wingspan guy or just covers a lot of ground who makes shots look good like to the cameras but you know not actually in practice so next up we've got uh brandon hunt at funny film fan uh, asks uh of all the teams doing much better than expected which is most likely to revert back to expectations which is most likely to maintain through the season Okay, so my pick on this, and sadly because I'm literally wearing a hat of them right now, is the New York Knickerbockers. Uh, based on their talent, it seems insane that this team is currently uh, two games above 500. For instance, Tim Hardaway is playing really well. He's their second leading scorer. Before this season, he was basically a replacement level player his whole career. Uh, if you look at, again, some of the shot quality, since we're talking about underlying metrics, uh, they are they should not be 10th in the league in offensive rating and 16th in defense it should be more like 17th and 24th according to the quality of shots that that they're allowing and generating so it seems impossible that this team is going to be able to sustain an above 500 record going forward as sad as that is to say uh, about our hometown team here in new york my answer is also the knicks for reasons that they're just the no account knicks they're the knicks um for me it's the raptors um if it's like Beyond the Knicks, yeah. The, the Raptors <laughs> are next division. Up. Sorry, Daniel. Sorry, uh, the North. Sorry, all those hashtags. Sorry, Drake. But uh, they're, they're just playing at such a high level right now where, like, yeah, we're used to the Raptors being, you know, a three seed, four seed, maybe a two seed in a good year. Um, but, like, I just – we've seen this from them before. I don't believe it. Like, if we're saying much better than expectations and, like, 
so for the Raptors, much better than expectations is all of a sudden the expectations now are that they are going to go in and bang with the Cavs. They're going to go in there. And if the Celtics, you know, right the ship again, the Celtics look like they did a little bit ago. Uh, yeah, that they're going to bang with them too. And that, you know, they can make some, make a real, you know, solid effort at making a finals run. And like, not to just be reductive on this, but like, yes, they have the underlying metrics. They have everything else, but it is largely the same team. Um, that are, they're playing offense like a little bit differently, but no, I just, I gotta see it. No, I just don't, I don't see it. Yeah, you talked about them, uh, we having seen this from them before. On December 29th of last year, they had the second highest offensive rating relative to the league in NBA history, higher than even the Warriors. And so that was a case of another hot start from the team. And when we know how the season ended for them eventually. One thing, I, I wasn't thinking this when we started this question, but as Kyle was talking about the Raptors and mentioned the Celtics, the Celtics are an interesting one for me too, just because they are pretty reliant on a lot of young players who we were just talking about Chris Stapps, for instance, I covered his rookie season and his second year, but um, the rookie wall, whether or not you believe that to be a real thing, it it could come into play because they're playing such big minutes because they haven't played a season this long before. So that's one team to look out for, but I'm going to come back the same way that you guys started and say the Knicks as well, just because defensively, I don't think that they – are going to play. They haven't been a, a good defensive team, but I just think some of the guys that they rely so much on are guys that historically have not played a whole lot of defense. Uh, Cancer is a little bit better this year than what he's been in the past, but he keeps playing through these injuries, and it, it almost seems like he's doing it, and that he he always has these gladiator type quotes every week, like you know, I just wanted to give it my all and. You know, I, I feel horrible that I wasn't able to go tonight. That could have made the difference when they get blown out by 20 in a random game. And it's just like, I mean, these are beginning of season games. You need to be healthy for the long run. If you are actually going to be a playoff team, they're in position to do that. So I look at that. Uh, I look at the fact that Porzingis has been missing more games lately. And like Kyle said, he, he hasn't always lasted. Hardaway is a guy that on the one hand they need his offense but on the other hand the more you play him you're going to get hit with the realities of his defense and so and the biggest thing maybe of all with them is that they have had i think the the craziest imbalance between home games and road games so far they've been fantastic at home i think they've only won one game on the road so far and they've got a whole lot of road games coming uh as we get closer to the second half of the season and that's going to be a rude awakening for them Okay, so next question comes from Adam Gillette, and his is about the Timberwolves. He says, given Thibodeau's reputation as a defensive guru and his rooster control, I think he means roster control, uh, why, although who knows, maybe Thibodeau does some farming uh, in in the offseason, why are the Timberwolves so bad at defense, and why does he play, he being Thibodeau, play the starters so much? So to the latter point, there's actually a really good story from Albert Bernaco of Deadspin uh, about Tom Thibodeau running his starters into the ground just perennially over his entire coaching career. It's titled, Tom Thibodeau is Destruction. You can find that uh, if you Google it. Uh, and interestingly, we had written a few years ago also when the, when the Bulls let Thibodeau go about how he was one of the best coaches at just squeezing performance out of his roster. His team's always overperformed relative to what you would expect based on the track records of his players. Unfortunately, this tendency to burn out the players by playing them too much, pushing them to the point of injury, uh, is part of the how Thibodeau 
causes his teams to overperform at least early in his tenure as coach, and then later on it it sort of backfires because it it just is not sustainable. It doesn't seem. This is another thing where it's funny where rhetoric and just kind of underlying trends kind of meet in the middle on Thibodeau because the 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 in studio analysis was always that you know Tom Thibodeau uh, teams play at playoff intensity all season long that's why like in the playoffs they can't really take it up a notch there's nowhere else to take it and like that's definitely true like they're you know playing you know that blitzing style of defense whatever or at least in chicago they were um minnesota will get to it in a second but also playoff intensity means playoff intensity for the stars for the best players you just play more minutes and like once upon a time, that actually was a breakthrough in analytics. Uh, it Maybe it shouldn't have been, but like if you play your best players more, you will have better results. At the time, we were talking about things like if uh, your star player gets two fouls in the first quarter, if they get three fouls in the second quarter, uh, do you leave them in, let them play with those fouls? The answer at the time, and I think still is, yes, uh, because there's no guarantee that they're going to keep getting amassing fouls at the inordinate rate that they did early on so you're just giving up minutes you're giving the other team the best thing that could happen to them which is the best player coming off the floor right one of those things you can you can control which is the amount of time that you leave your star player on the bench the other thing is sort of still up in the air which is how many minutes can he play at the end of the game without fouling out right and we'll get to this in a minute. I think there's a question on referees later on, but like referees are kind of hesitant to foul out what a really good player, really any player. And so that's the, that's the roster, uh, that's the roster like burning them down. So the defense, uh, th- that part of the question is just, it's a little bit hard to really theorize because on the one hand, yeah, it's still a new, relatively new coach. He's been there for a year. They added some new pieces. But here's the thing, and when you went in, I, I was out there before the season, you went into their training camp, and these guys were trying to sell you on the idea that even their new guys were old guys. Jimmy Butler, Tosh Gibson were guys that had played in his system before. And so the thinking was, okay, the young guys and Wiggins and Towns and what have you, these are people that played for him in that first year, so now they've got it down. The other guys that they're adding are people that played for him for years in Chicago. And so it's not going to take as long for these guys to gel as you would think. Wrong. It's just it's strange because this is his reputation and this is the thing they're failing at. They're very good on offense, which maybe they should be given who they have. But defensively, there's just sometimes it's effort. I wouldn't say that's what it is most of the time. Uh, Sometimes it's just Wiggins. But honestly, and I never saw this coming, having scouted the guy quite a bit in college, it's Towns. Towns just looks really bad on defense. I will say that I think some of this is on Thibodeau because it, it seems like for all the blitzing that they did in Chicago and how aggressively they played in Chicago, for whatever reason, he seems to tell Towns not to be overly aggressive in coming out to defend pick and rolls. And so he just gets torched a lot of the time. And he gets caught in these really weird in-between spots where he gets driven past, he gets jumpers rained on in his face because he doesn't really know how far to come out because he looks like that dog that's got the electric fence. And I don't, I, for the life of me, it makes Towns look bad. There are times where Towns looks bad independently. I wouldn't say it's normally effort with him. Uh, with Wiggins, sometimes it has been. And we saw that plenty over the years. He was on the cusp of kind of becoming the new age James Harden. But it, a lot of it just doesn't add up to me. It, it, because this is not what you think of with Thibodeau. Maybe it's that the league is changing a little bit more. We, we watched them do all the strong side stuff. In Chicago, maybe it's that teams are just moving the ball in a way where that sort of style doesn't work. And the idea of keeping your 
your pick and roll big defensively and holding him back instead of letting him come out and try to blitz a little bit more that that just doesn't work in a league where so many guys can shoot the ball but there's there's a lot of stuff that fundamentally I'd love to figure out exactly why it's gone so awry for that team the last couple of years yeah I think you're totally right that a lot of the innovations that he brought that made them so good defensively early in in the Chicago days just are naturally not going to be as effective now now that a lot of people copied that defense across the league, and then a lot of other teams changed the way that they played as a direct response to being able to kind of combat that defense. And then the other thing is, in a little bit of fairness to Tibbs defensively, I mean, his roster, you mentioned a lot of these guys, it's filled with guys that have really bad defensive track records like Wiggins, uh, Towns, who it's impossible to tell whether or not he's kind of just stalled out defensively uh, since he was a rookie. Jeff Teague, long history of bad defensive metrics. Jamal Crawford, the same. Even somebody like Shabazz Muhammad, who doesn't play that much, but just a disaster defensively. So he doesn't have that much to work with from the existing guys, but you mentioned he brought in uh, guys like uh, Jimmy Butler and, and Taj Gibson. And those guys do have good defensive track record. And maybe the most distressing thing is that Thibodeau hasn't actually caused these guys to play better. If you look at the top nine Timberwolves this season by minutes per game, only three of them, so Wiggins, Towns, and Tyus Jones, have a better defensive real plus minus this year than they did last year. Uh, and Wiggins was so terrible last year that it would have been hard-pressed for him not to get better defensively this year. And so it's it's, it's not even necessarily that the players that he he was given are bad defensive players, but he's not making the kind of progress with that roster defensively that you would expect from a guy with that reputation. Okay, so let's pause the barrage of questions now for a word from another sponsor, and then we'll be right back with more reader questions. Don't be the guy who winds up parking 15 blocks from the arena. It's way too cold outside for that. Take an Uber ride instead. You won't have to pay for parking or walk across a lot or spend time looking for a spot. You can request an Uber ride anytime with the Uber app. It's safe and comfortable and the best way to get to where you need to be. You'll even know the price before you book a trip and can pay directly in the app. So install the Uber app today from the App Store or Google Play. And new riders who use the code THELAB, that's T-H-E-L-A-B, one word, will get $5 off their first three rides. That's code THELAB to get $5 off your first three rides with Uber. Uber is the better way to get anywhere you have to be. Offers for new users only and expires on February 18th, 2018. Okay, let's get back to the show. Okay, we're back and we have more questions. This one comes from Pete Rudkins at Pete underscore Rudkins. He says, compared to other players past and present in their early 30s, how abnormal is LeBron James's performance this year? I.e., I've never seen a player improve his field goal percentage year after year like this and increase his playing time. Uh, and yeah, I think we talked about LeBron um, uh, in the past a few episodes ago when we were talking about the Cavs, and we said that this was his best season yet. And this is just ridiculous the performance that he's put on just for a little context uh, among players who were at least 33 years old which is what LeBron is right now and had a 30 usage rate or higher which he has a 31% usage rate this is easily the highest true shooting percentage a player has ever had in NBA history he has a 66% true shooting percentage number two on that list and number three are both Carl Malone uh, who was only around 60% only and then you have a Shaq season his first uh, season in Miami 
2020, uh, in which he was 59% true shooting percentage. So we're talking about leaps and bounds uh, better than any other player in NBA history in terms of old guys scoring this efficiently and taking on such a workload. I've got a name for you that's not going to show up on that list because you're using the basketball reference. Sure, of course. Percentage, uh, which doesn't include assists. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the guy who came to mind, and this was a rules change, but like I think that leads you to it, is Steve Nash. Oh, interesting. Steve Nash was in his age 30 season when he went to Phoenix, uh, and all of a sudden he he was like, you know, he'd flirted with you know 60% true shooting, but then he was 63, 65, 64 in his age th- 33, and he's just started winning MVPs at that point. And so, like, yeah, that's, like, the only one that I could come up with of a dude in his 30s to mid-30s and, like, is still improving, is still, you know, like, improving by leaps, bounds, and, like, is one of the best players in the league. But aside from that, no, that's incredibly uncommon, obviously. That's actually a great call, Kyle. It makes me jealous that I didn't think of that. I mean, the only people I can think of, nobody that is at that level, either one of those levels that you guys were just talking about, and even the people that I can think of are – guys that their usage was nowhere near that um i mean and they're people that basically their skill sets weren't fully uncovered until later in their career so totally different types of guys chauncey is someone that comes to mind as someone that was really impactful later on but you know was asked to do something totally different and was just kind of miscast in place after place after place that he went it's a really great feature that i think tom friend uh who's a magazine writer at espn for a while uh did just about how miscast he was and kind of how they brought him in to be this big scoring point guard then realize it's not what he was but the other guy and this will probably kind of come off as a strange one uh tyson chandler i think both chauncey and tyson chandler were guys that didn't make the all-star game until their career until like the 12th or 13th year of their career uh they just were such late career guys that never really found that right role and kind of tyson just emerged as this guy that was not only a great defender but i think part of it was going to a bigger market where he was kind of recognized a little bit more after they won the championship in Dallas going to New York and being a lob target constantly with a team that had crazy spacing. But again, I mean, that versus LeBron, we're not even talking about really the same thing at that point. We're more just talking about guys that um, got better as they aged for a while because they found better roles for them. But that's what makes LeBron so crazy and so impressive is that he's always been this high usage guy and this guy that had to spread the ball to everybody else and is still the guy that everybody keys in on whereas those other guys were not number one players on their offense well tyson was a funny thing where like teams just remembered how to use him because he started his career down in new orleans with chris paul and that like that chris paul david west team where he was just catching lobs constantly and people at the time were being like well this is a team like playing offense like we haven't seen like look at all these alley-oops the the paul to chandler whatever and it took a long time for them to get back to that like really the what was it It wasn't until lin sanity that he started catching everything again and then they ran it back and like he had some success other teams whatever yeah, and if we're one more, if we're talking about late career, sort of improbable, great seasons, it made me think of uh, another guy that showed up on on my list when I searched a basketball reference was Bernard King in 1991 mm. after being injured. So you know LeBron didn't have to go through that even. Uh, and at age 34, King came out and averaged 28.4 points per game on 47 percent shooting, uh, just out of nowhere on the on the bullets, and and sort of showed everyone the the play 
player that he used to be, but people had had written off by that point in his career. So it is pretty uncommon, though. I mean, you have to dig down deep into the annals of history to find any player who has been able to carry that kind of a workload at that kind of an age and and still seems to be sort of getting better or at least maintaining their form uh, from when they were a much younger player. We should add, obviously, Michael being, you know, the, the quintessential dude who, you know, added things to his game a little bit later in the career and yada, yada, yada. But I, th- I think that goes without saying. Yeah, I mean, Michael is going to be the answer to a lot of these questions, I think, uh, when we look at it. Uh, okay, so let's move on to another question from Vince. I think that's how it's pronounced. It's V-Y-N-C-E. He's at the wheel me. Uh, and he's wanting to know about statistics for referees. So he says, basketball reference has stats for refs, but are these statistically meaningful in the sense of being relevant, predictive, etc.? And if not, could you design ones that were? So I actually wrote about this a few years ago uh, on ESPN Insider, where I just looked at the tendencies of referees, uh, and there were some that did have pronounced tendencies to boost scoring, for instance. Uh, Violet Palmer was one that showed up as the one that boosted scoring the most when I looked at it. I think this was in 2013. Uh, there were ones who were offense killers. Uh, Eric Dalen uh, showed up there. There were guys that, obviously, they called fouls more than than usual and, and others that swallowed the whistle. So there were tendencies that you could kind of look at for referees and kind of figure out, do these guys tend to make the game faster? Do they make it slower based on whether they're efficient and the players know this too. I'm struck by, I think back to uh, the great book, The Jordan Rules, which uh, had some great quotes from Charles Barkley, uh, in addition to a lot of members of the Bulls, where they would just, they would know how a game would go based on who was refereeing the game that night and just be like, okay, we're going to get screwed tonight because so-and-so is, is refereeing and he's not going to let me do this thing that I love to do. Uh, and so I think there's definitely, you know, people are cognizant of the tendencies that referees have and they can have a pretty big impact on uh, various aspects of the game so the funny thing is i've actually had a lot of people because of the type of writing that i do ask me questions about is there stuff that i have that i don't publish with regards to some of these refs to try to help guys that bet on these games someone like bob vulgaris in particular basically what metrics are they using are there metrics that i have that i don't publish that would help other people make financial decisions on these games based on the refs and what we know about the refs and it's always been really interesting to me that the league as a whole has data on this in terms of who's blowing the whistle and what calls are made but that they don't disclose exactly which refs are blowing the whistle to make certain calls obviously we can see some of them and obviously with regards to text we can see which referee gives out those texts. Sometimes Mike Breen will tell you who's given out a tech or if there's bad blood between a player and a certain ref. But I, I've never really tried to seek and make that information, uh, something that I'm looking at or try to inform anything. Um, I remember in my really elementary days of using numbers, I wrote one story about something. I think the headline of the story was why refs hate the Knicks because I basically found that the older a team was, the more likely they were to generate a lot of fouls, which kind of just spoke to a level of entitlement that these guys have. The better they know the refs, the more likely they are to kind of speak to them a different way and the more pissed off they are that they're going to make the refs. But just in general, I've never been able to take anything really concrete from anything about it. Uh, That was the one story I've really done on that. I talked to Rashid Wallace for that story, and it was probably the most fun I've ever had in an interview. She dropped probably 15 F-bombs in like a two-minute talk that we had which was great. But 
Um, there's so much to it that really I don't feel like the league quite divulges enough information about who's making these calls. But, I mean, lo and behold, in the playoffs, you always see someone who is like, you know, the Thunder or the Warriors. They're 0-8 with this guy as an official. Fans definitely recognize certain people that they really feel like screw over their teams. And, you know, I would pay attention to that, too, if I was a fan. But I don't feel like we have quite enough information to be able to really divulge um, if a team is clearly advantaged or disadvantaged or if a player is without those sorts of details that Kyle just laid out. All right. So next up, we have RMJ equals H, who is an annoying Deadspin commenter uh, replying to us on Twitter. He asks, what skill is the easiest to improve upon after joining the NBA? Uh, for me, I'm not sure if this is easy. So this is one of those chicken and egg things. Uh, but the thing that is always a standout for, for a young guard, especially is his turnovers. And like, it's this strange thing where a guard who's a rookie with a lot of turnovers, it's actually a positive indicator of how good he's going to be. Uh, because you assume that those turnovers are going to go down. And if you're trying things, if you're like the kind of, you know, uh, prodding, probing guard who's creating a lot of turnovers unless they're just catastrophically bad turnovers, uh, you are probably going to develop into a pretty good playmaker, a pretty good penetrator, pretty good shot creator. And so I'm not sure if it's uh, a skill that improves out of necessity in these players and it's like not easy, they just have to work really hard on it, Or, but it's something that like as a matter of course uh, just gets better in all these dudes uh, who come in and just are throwing the ball around. Probably because, you know, the game's just faster. They have a caliber of defender that's on them that, like, just they just aren't used to. And, like, you, you kind of get used to that over time. I'm going to go with shooting, uh, specifically shooting efficiency. We've seen studies where players who aren't very efficient in college, but they do have the scoring piece, actually tend to add that efficiency uh, as they become NBA players and kind of NBA veterans. And we've also seen situations where three-point shooting is something that can be improved upon. We've mentioned this on the show even, that if there's a guy who's not a very good three-point shooter in college, especially a, a wing player or perimeter player, but has a good free throw percentage and clearly has some kind of good stroke, they can actually become good three-point shooters in the NBA better than they were in college, even though the college distance is so much shorter. So I think that's a, a particular skill that can be added, whereas maybe something that, you know, if the player has a red flag in terms of his versatility or some of his defensive metrics in, in college, those players don't tend to really add to that or ever become really you know impactful all-around players if they haven't shown that at some point in their college career. Yeah, I, I think the takeaway here and the consensus is that offense is a little bit easier to improve on than defense, uh, in part because some of that defensive improvement is going to be somewhat based on who your teammates are, do you communicate with them well, do you have a coach that even gives a damn about defense and tries to put you in position to get better at it. Um, what I was going to say was kind of an offshoot or a, a watered-down version of what Neil just said. I think free-throw shooting is actually where a lot of guys get better because so many of these guys, especially guys that are much bigger, have never really had to work on it because they're just so dominant in the post or they're so much bigger than everyone that they've never really worked on it. Um, and so it's their first time really consistently every single day taking shots at the line and and being forced to work on that. And in some cases, the embarrassment, the sheer embarrassment of really being seen on television, missing free throws or having guys hack you relentlessly because you can't shoot them forces guys to work on it more. In some cases, you know, some well-publicized cases you've seen, some guys never really get good at it. But um, when I looked at this, when I worked at the Wall Street Journal, I saw pretty 
commonly, pretty frequently, that guys would get at least a couple percentage points better as free throw shooters from when they first started in the league, and that guys as they age tend to get better at that, not worse. All right, our next question is from Sarah Peterson at Naughty Gnome, and she says, is Marcus Smart really clutch, or does it just feel like he can only make shots under high-pressure situations? Kyle, you did some research on this, right? Uh, Very basic research. We can answer this one pretty quickly. Yes, Marcus Smart has been clutch. He has a 45% true shooting percentage over the course of the season in crunch time, which is scored within five points either way in the last five minutes, 65 true shooting percentage. Um, that's really good. That's really good. That's like LeBron. That is like LeBron, and uh, 45 is really, really bad and represents an improvement from where he was earlier in this season. Uh, he has been the worst shooter on the planet uh, this season, uh, but in crunch time he has been very, very good. So, yes, true. Okay, this one's from Smokey Canova, and question is, predict the all-rookie team as well as the all-rookie defensive first team, which – is is there even a rookie defensive first team? Oh, he even says, which I don't think is a thing, but should be. So <laughs> we'll do the first part because uh, I don't think the average person watches enough defense specifically from rookies to be able. That would be a really hard thing to vote for. But uh, so I'll I'll go first. I would go with Ben Simmons, obviously, Donovan Mitchell, Lonzo Ball, Jason Tatum. And Jordan Bell. Uh, I'm curious about Bell because statistically he's going to have some stats that look good compared to others. Uh, specifically, he does pretty well with steals, I think, and also with blocks. And the other thing is that he gets a lot of exposure because of the team he plays for and because it seems like a couple different fan bases care about him. Bulls fans won't let him go here. Um, but he he's on a good team but doesn't get the same sort of minutes and opportunities that everybody else is going to get. So I'm curious as to how that will play out. Uh, I'm also curious about Lonzo and if his percentages are not good, like if his field goal percentage lags for the rest of the season or if he just kind of stagnates there, uh, if his counting statistics will be good enough. Uh, I think sometimes, remember that year with Michael Carter-Williams where he won Rookie of the Year, but his counting numbers were really good, but his efficiency was bad. I don't know how it will work for something like a, a all-rookie first team when there are a bunch of good people to choose from, if his counting statistics will be good enough, or if he's just in such a big market and is so well-known that that might push him over the edge. But there's a lot of good choices, honestly. It's been a really good year for rookies. Yeah, with some of these, uh, we have to recognize that there's a difference between playing well as a rookie and projecting to play well five to seven years down the line, and some of that playing well has to do with being in a good situation like Jordan Bell. Yeah, so mine, uh, I think there are three locks, uh, especially for doing who's going to make the team, uh, and that's Simmons, Tatum, and Lonzo. Uh, Lonzo, like, Lonzo's rates are down. Like, you know, he doesn't look good. But, like, his counting stats are so high. And he's on the Lakers. And he's a point guard. And he's Lonzo Ball. Uh, he's going to make that team. Uh, Simmons and Tatum, I think, are obvious. Uh, Kuzma and Bogdan Bogdanovich are my other two. I mean, you can obviously make the case for Donovan Mitchell, Jordan Bell, uh, Laurie Markkinen, OG Anoibi, uh Like, yeah, like, there are other, there are a lot of good rookies, uh, out there this season, but, uh, Bogdan is, like, came in as, like, a complete player. He's obviously an older rookie, but he brings the ball up the court, he can make shots, he can create, he can, like, play make. Uh, he's just a complete player. And Kuzma, uh, is a more, like, Kuzma might be the better Lakers rookie. He probably is at this point. Like, yeah. I was about to say, I totally forgot about him, but he's probably a better pick than Lonzo. Especially if you're not looking just at the counting stats. Yeah, like we saw him in summer league, and like he was killing it. Like the Lakers fans love that dude. 
Um, but like also, uh, we were talking about him earlier today, just in the office, and like he could pretty easily be like the third best player on a championship team pretty soon if he keeps going at this rate. And like Lonzo, like it's harder to say like where Lonzo goes. Like Lonzo projects and like projected coming in, still projects, I think, uh, to be a really, really good player. But like Kuzma doesn't have far to go to be like a solid, solid contributor on like a very good team. Okay, and I'm going to put in a word for uh, Bam Adebayo of Miami. Uh, right now he ranks third among all qualified rookies in win shares per 48 minutes, but I also have to second uh, all the guys that you mentioned above, especially Simmons, obviously, uh, but also Tatum and Jordan Bell and, and so forth. Okay, so the next question is from Fairtrade Meme Crafter. Uh, his, his handle is at BirdlawDS, and he asks, on, <laughs> what is Jamal Murray's ceiling? Just he just he just wants the facts from us, fair trade meme crafter. <laughs> and and what and what is with this man's Twitter handle? I, I mean, like if we're gonna get a specific he's question, just a, he's like, just a meme. What right? is Jamal Murray's ceiling? I need to understand. Well, fair trade meme. So so in uh, taking it at face value, Jamal Murray before the season, uh, according to Carmelo, which is our projection system, his most similar players were Bradley Beal, J.R. Smith, and James Harden, which is crazy because Jamal Murray did not play very well last season. Uh, maybe if you adjust for rookie standards and his age, it gets a little better. Uh, but this season, he's improved, especially on offense. His usage and his true shooting are both up. He's getting the line more, shooting better from three, and consequently, he has a 110 offensive rating while using 23% of possessions while on the floor, which is really good offensively, especially for a young guard and I think Harden is an interesting comparison because he was also a truly poor defender uh, early in his career Murray's defensive numbers are pretty bad and he didn't have surprisingly when I looked at this Harden didn't have great assist rate numbers or playmaking numbers uh, in his first couple seasons in OKC he only added those later and boy did he add those later so I think that's an interesting ceiling for Jamal Murray if we're taking the question at face value. I'm just kind of mad at this dude because the question he should be asking is, what's Gary Harris's ceiling? Like, Gary Harris is the best guard on that team by a mile. Uh, Malone, like, I mean, he's blown a little smoke, but, like, Malone kind of calls him the best player on the team, even with Joker. And if you look at, like, his combination with Jokic, uh, like, when they're passing to each other, when Joker's passing to Harris, Harris is passing to Joker, um, it's one of the best in the league already, and it was last year, too. So... Uh, Gary Harris's ceiling is very, very high. Yep, and that, that's actually what I was going to say. Neil, the thing that stood out about what you were saying about Harden is that his playmaking statistics weren't fantastic in Oklahoma City, but think about who he was sharing the ball with. Like, he, There's no chance to really have a really high assist rate when you're playing with guys that control the ball as much as Durant and Westbrook. And I kind of feel like to some extent Murray, he's not in the exact same situation, but uh joker really i mean Jokic handles the ball a lot for a big man is one of the best passing big men in the league if not the best and so he's going to get a lot of assists uh you've got other guys in that offense Millsap in particular when he's healthy is going to get a lot of assists harris is a guy that you know can handle the ball and does a lot on his own and plays defense and so it's interesting murray on his own in a different on a different team might have better bigger numbers than he does there he'd be less efficient because of it but he's not anywhere near the most complete player on that team so I, maybe he would do more if he was on a different team and asked to do more but uh, just I think that has to be taken into account when you talk about a ceiling because Harden clearly wasn't really hitting his ceiling where he was 
but he wasn't really asked to do everything that he had to do in Houston. Okay, let's move on to a question from Sam I Am uh, at SamMJ007. He asks, aside from Golden State Warriors, how often have historically great offenses like the 2017, I'm guessing he means also the 2018 Rockets, actually translated to postseason success? And do 538's models expect the Rockets to make a deep run this year? Uh, we got a number of Rockets-related questions, actually, regarding their postseason potential. Uh, and so I looked at this just to kind of I put another nail in the coffin of this idea that only defense wins championships. I looked at the relationship between a team's offensive and defensive bias according to win shares uh, for its whole roster and its postseason success. And if you account for its overall point differential, there is absolutely no significant relationship between whether a team is offensively heavy or defensively heavy and how deep it tends to go in the playoffs. Now, I do have to say that with a caveat that basically the Michael Jordan Bulls and the Magic Johnson-led Lakers are some of the only hyper-great offenses to actually win titles. You also get a lot of those Steve Nash-era Dallas Mavericks teams that just fell short, or teams like the 2016 Warriors that uh, lost in the finals. But as a general rule, there isn't anything to this idea of you can't win if you're just such a great offensive team. Moving on, next question is from Eric. Uh, Should the Bulls trade Miritich and or Robin Lopez? The younger players seem to learn from them. The team is winning now versus they need to lose more to increase odds at a top three pick. Is it better to trade or try to keep winning and probably still lose a lot and teach good habits? We need better grammar on these guys. Like, just I know you've got a limited character count. Well, especially now that the character count has been expanded, there's no excuse. Grammar, diction, uh, composition, uh, come on. Anyway, uh, what's up with the Bulls, Chris? So I think by default they actually might end up having to trade Miritich. I'm putting out a story later today when we're recording this about the Bulls and how – They've gotten so much better so quickly. And obviously everyone's pointing at Miritich because they've gone 7-0 and since he's come back as we're recording this. Um, but the, it's not so much that they have to trade him because they're going to win too much. It's more because Miritich and Markkanen play the same position. And at this point, Miritich is not even starting because he's coming off the bench for Markkanen, who was playing at the beginning and actually got off to a really nice start. Looked like he was you know, going to be their best scorer uh, you know, for probably this year and maybe going forward, depending on what happens with Levine. But if, if that's the case, you, you're not going to, especially because n- neither one of them is really a defensive stud right now, you can't play them together. They've played six minutes together all season, from what I understand. Uh, it, since you can't really play them on the court together and because they kind of duplicate too many of the same skills, uh, and the fact that Markin is younger and looks more athletic than Miritich ever was, I, I can't really see how with Miritich's contract situation, if he's playing this well, and I think as of when I just looked, 35 points per 100 possessions and 12 rebounds or 13 rebounds or something like that, which is pretty much LeBron and DeMarcus Cousins and a handful of people, you can't pass up an opportunity to trade somebody like that when you're a rebuilding team and this guy happens to play the position of the guy that you just drafted. I kind of feel like you have to cut ties with him and try to get something for him because this this is as good as an opportunity as you're going to get and he would hinder the guy that you just drafted in terms of the minutes 
that he'd play. I mean, the question, though, is, like, what are you going to get from Miritich? A dude who's been up and down. He's, he's had a run of a, of a few good games since he came back, but he has been very disappointing with a few different coaches. And, like, this is someone who came in, like, with a lot of, like, next Dirk talk when he was coming in. So, like, is that a second-round pick? Is that a future second-round pick that could turn into, you know, something worse than a second-round pick? Like, like, what are you actually getting from Miritich at this point? I mean, does it matter? And, and, and that's kind of a weird question to ask. But at the same time, if you've got Markin in there and that's who you're going with, and you – I mean, really, th- this is also the Bulls who are really stupid a lot of the time. They They just gave up a second round pick that would have been Jordan Bell, who, like I said, Bulls fans are still angry about that as they should be because they sold off that pick. But I mean, at a certain point, you need to just be in asset collection mode. And who knows? Like if Miritich plays this well, I can't really see it turning into a first, especially with the way that these teams are hoarding their first round picks. This is just a one year deal. So it's just a rental in, in that case. But, uh, I mean, you, you might as well cash it in for something because, if you do end up keeping Portis, you, these two might not ever get along. I also am of the a belief at this point that that should not matter because since Miritich has been back, they have not talked and they've gone seven and zero. So I don't think chemistry matters as much as people make it out to be. But at this point, if, if Miritich is going to do this, even if he's good, unless you're going to make a decision to go with him over Markkinen, I don't really see why you'd keep them both unless you're going to always have one off the bench and one start and never have them play together, which doesn't seem rational going forward for guys that are that young. And I'll just say for a team that we all sort of agreed going into the season that this would be a tanking slash rebuilding year, what are you doing winning seven straight games in a row? That should not be possible uh, if if you're really committed to a, a tank job and, and trying to kind of rebuild and blow up a team. No, man, that that, that is next level tank. They are tanking. They're tanking. <laughs> the is, tanking is being tanked. The, yes, no, no, this this is the thing. Like the the Bulls are having the most Knicks season that anyone's had in the last several years. But the Knicks <laughs> has kind of got it together. This is a Knicks special. You go on the winning streak in the middle of the season, then you you get you tank it back down again. Then at the end of the season, you roll off you know four and five, like you know five is out of seven, and uh, and ruin your pick a little bit more. This is a very Knicks season out of the Chicago Bulls. Okay, well, that'll do it for this week's show. Thanks to all of the listeners out there who wrote in. Please keep sending us your questions, and we'll try to do another Mailbag podcast episode very soon. And just quick at the bottom, uh, we got a lot of good questions, uh, some that just would have taken a little bit too much research for us to answer. Uh, We were asked who's been dunked on the most. Uh, What is the statistical correlation between wearing a headband and not wearing a headband? (laughs) And uh, is there a way to quantify a championship team's assertion that every team gets up for a game against them? Uh, These are all like kind of more article length, uh, feature length things. So like we might get them later in the season. We'll shout you out if we do. But also send uh, more grammatically coherent and (laughs) uh, idiomatic English uh, questions uh, next time around, please. We're going to be sending our our questions through the copy editing process next time. Uh, In any event, our podcast producers, as always, are Tony Chow and Katie Ferguson and our podcast commissioners, Chad Matlin. You can email us at podcasts at 538.com. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. And whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we're there too. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, so subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. You can also find us in the Listen tab on the ESPN app. Wherever you listen to us, be sure to review and rate the show, which helps others discover the program. For Chris and Kyle, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening and sharing your holiday week with us. We'll talk to you next time.